All right, well, who is Jesus? Uh, I, as I said last week, I believe this to be the most important question that you'll ever answer. Who is Jesus? So many people would say they believe in Jesus, but which Jesus do they mean? Do you believe in a Jesus who saves from sin? Do you believe in the true Jesus revealed in Scripture? Who do you believe Jesus to be? The Bible is clear that belief in Jesus is the key to heaven's door. But what if you believe in a man-made, twisted, or tainted Jesus? What if your concept of Jesus is far enough off from the truth that your belief is not really in Him? Jesus was a good man and a great teacher. That's true. But will believing this save anyone? Not in the slightest. Jesus was fully God. But if you don't believe he was also a man who bled and died on a cross for your sin, will you be saved? I think not. And so it becomes very important that we really understand who Jesus is and that our picture of him isn't clouded or faded or skewed. Because let me tell you that we have an enemy who likes to keep people just on the wrong side of the truth, especially when it comes to who Jesus is. Cults with millions of followers are the result. But it doesn't even take a cult to keep people on the wrong side of who Jesus is. Sometimes all it takes is someone like Oprah or certain overly happy preachers. Those who would have you believe in a Jesus who would never judge, who would never be willing to let anyone wind up in hell. No, theirs is not the true Jesus, nor will faith in such an untrue Jesus save anyone. Therefore, we are spending this Christmas season taking a careful look at who Jesus really was and is according to our only hope for objective truth on the subject, the Bible. Last week, we talked about Jesus, the baby. We were amazed by the audacity of God in choosing to experience human life all the way from start to finish, from conception to death. How radical it is that God chose to come in a totally dependent form. The Creator, depending upon His creatures, born ultimately to die. This is an unfathomable mystery. We remember that the birth of Jesus and the events surrounding His birth were predicted hundreds of years before He was born. We also talked about the purposes of God in coming as a baby so that He could identify with us at our weakest point and so that He could show us true humility as He went to incredible lengths to prove His love for us. We remember that Jesus, even as a baby, was worthy of praise. People came from afar to worship Him even though he was still just an infant. This is the glory of Christmas. Jesus was worthy of worship at birth, being nothing less than God in human form, though emptied in some mysterious way by choice, having gone so far as to subject himself to the limitations of human infancy. Still, most of all we know about the life of Jesus happened after he grew up, right? That's right. And so this week we're going to take a look at Jesus, the man, 
Now, first of all, let's establish the fact that Jesus was actually a man. We often talk about the deity of Christ, but it is equally as important to know that he was a fully functioning, red-blooded, beard-growing, heart-beating, muscles-flexing, sandal-wearing, masculine man. Now, first of all, let's look at what the Bible says. It explains it in several places. The fact that Jesus was a man is one of the most basic truths in Christian theology. But not everyone accepts it. And even most of us sometimes need the reminder. You probably know that many cults deny that Jesus was God. But you might be surprised to know that some deny his humanity. It's been going on since the first century. The earliest Gnostics made Jesus out to be a sort of a, a, a spiritual apparition. Maybe like an angel or a human in disguise, but not really human. The Bible, however, is clear that Jesus was an actual flesh and blood person. History certainly knows Jesus is a real man who lived and died at a certain time on this earth. But regardless, even most Orthodox Christians have never fully thought through the implications of this portion of the identity of Christ. Jesus was a man. In fact, the biblical Jesus is the one and only God-man. If Jesus is not God, our worship of him is blasphemous and our faith is misplaced. If Jesus is not a man, his death cannot pay the price for our sin. In some ways, we'll never fully grasp the paradox of the identity of Jesus. But we must at least know that the Bible speaks of Jesus as both fully God and fully man, with no watering down of either portion of his nature. In fact, all of our hope rests in this dual nature of Jesus Christ. Let's review a couple verses in Hebrews to nail this foundational truth down from chapter 2, starting with verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, Jesus also became flesh and blood by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he deliver those who have lived all of their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Mortality. Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He then could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. There are so many passages clearly stating that Jesus was fully God, but there we have a passage explaining the importance of his humanity in plain English. And we see clearly here that the manhood of Jesus was not some kind of illusion. Jesus was not a fake man or, or a man only in appearance, but, but don't take my word for it. The inspired writer of Hebrews tells us straight up that Jesus was made of flesh and blood, born in human form and in every respect like us. Someone wrote a song several years ago called, What If God Was One of Us? What if God was one of us? Remember that? Some of you are like, I was trying to forget it. Thank you. <laughs> and of course, the person who wrote that song was not a believer, but little did she seem to know that the Bible says God actually was one of us. Yes, even just a slob like one of us. As the song says, in every respect, Jesus was a human being. 
and all that that means. Just like us. The only difference in the humanity of Jesus and ours is that he did not descend from Adam and Eve like the rest of us, but rather came down from heaven directly from God. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, placed in Mary's womb as God and by God. Mary was a surrogate mother, which means that Jesus was not a literal, physical descendant of Mary and Joseph, nor did he literally descend from Adam. This is why Jesus was not under the curse of sin as are the rest of us. Because we are Adam's descendants. This is why the Bible says in another place, though as in the first Adam, we all die. In Christ, the second Adam, we are made alive. And so while it's important to remember that Jesus was not the offspring of a man and a woman, his humanity was every bit as human as ours. And in some ways, even more so than the first man, Adam, Because like us, Jesus was actually born. As I mentioned last week, Jesus had a belly button. Adam and Eve didn't. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had a belly button. Just like me and you. He grew up in a real town called Nazareth. Where his earthly dad was a carpenter. Because of this, there's little doubt that Jesus was a trained carpenter who worked as a carpenter for several years before he began his ministry. He was a firstborn son, and in those days, that meant he would have been trained in the trade of his earthly father. I believe Jesus was a hardworking man. I mean, we don't really hear about him until he's 30. What was he doing before that? Working his tail off. Historically, Jesus Christ was originally known as Jesus of Nazareth because he was a real noteworthy person of history. And Nazareth was his hometown where he would have been thought of as the carpenter, at least the carpenter's son. Like other boys, Jesus spent most of his young life playing with friends, skinning his knee, you know, and learning to build things with his dad. His dad showed him everything he knew. Joseph could see that Jesus was growing like a normal boy, but Joseph also knew that Jesus had a a hidden identity because of the visit from the angel Gabriel and all the fuss around his birth and because of the things Joseph knew from Scripture as a good Jew, and probably because of the things he could see with his own eyes. Joseph knew his son he was raising, though human, was also the Messiah, the Son of God. The Bible says Jesus kept increasing. This is a, this is a human thing. It's like, like he had it all at birth. There was, there was mental development that had to happen. There was human things that had to happen. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, Luke 2.52. As Jesus grew mentally and physically, he found that people liked him. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. People liked him. He was a good kid. God was pleased with him. And this boy grew and grew until he became the man we're going to talk about today. Now, somewhere around 20 years ago, two decades ago, I'm that old that I can talk about two decades ago, um, I heard an amazing sermon about the humanity of Jesus from a pastor named Bill Hybels, and I took meticulous notes. I also made a note that this preacher actually said that he got his outline from a seminary professor whose name I can't remember. That was a long time ago when I was just learning to preach. 
Some of you are like, well, you can keep working. But I was really, I mean, really just learning uh, to preach. So I honestly don't know how much of the sermon, as they pulled this out, <laughs> was original to me uh, and how much I borrowed way back then. Over the years, I've re-preached this message quite a few times, and I'm always tweaking it, always changing it, so I, I'm just, I'm really not sure. Uh, but I can remember the preacher saying, over 20 years ago, when you think of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, think of strength, sensitivity, and simplicity. So first of all, understand that as a man, Jesus was marked by great strength. No matter what you believe about Jesus, whether or not you believe him to be the son of God, whether or not you understand that he was God in the flesh, come to earth to save us from our sin, no matter what you believe about all of that, after careful research, you would have to admit that the Jesus of history must have been a person of, of formidable strength. One of my dad's brothers has been a carpenter for most of his adult life. He's lifted lumber and hammered nails and hung sheetrock and those types of things for decades. He's a man marked by his physical strength. Uncle Kurt is what some call country strong. The kind of strength you don't get by lifting weights. The kind of strong that only comes through years of hard physical labor. My dad was and is strong too, but I do remember when I beat him at arm wrestling. It probably wasn't fair since my arms are longer and I was at the peak of my brief athletic career, uh, but I can tell you that I never beat Uncle Kurt, long arms or not. This guy could swing a 20-ounce hammer over his head. He didn't bother with the little, you know, finishing hammers. He just went ahead and used the framing hammer for all of it. You know, it just was so strong. He, he, he would put up sheetrock by himself. I don't even, you know. Just, he, he could do these things. In fact, when I was about 15, I helped my uncle build a house. I spent just about every day of that summer working with him. My body was a lot closer to manhood by the time we were finished in that one summer. I know from experience what that kind of work does to your physique. It makes you strong. It gives you rough, calloused hands and dark brown skin. As my dad would say, that kind of work will make you tough. And you see, we need to remember that Jesus was almost certainly a carpenter by trade right up until the last three years of his life, right up until he was about 30. He would have been building that carpenter's body for 20 years or so. And carpenters in those days didn't have nail guns or cordless drills, folks. They didn't ride around in air-conditioned pickups with, uh, with leather seats and built-in computers. Uh, in fact, they didn't even have lumber yards. They had to fell their own trees and saw their own logs with hand tools. They had to hew their own stone out of the ground and mix their own mortar. Especially in those days, a carpenter had to have great physical strength or else he'd never lasted in the trade. Undoubtedly, Jesus was a physically strong man. Scripture also hints at the physical strength and stamina of Jesus. One such passage is found in the 21st chapter of Matthew. Let's read from verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? There's our question again. Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in, Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, I want you to notice some things here. It says Jesus 
entered the temple area and drove them out. The book of John records he actually used a scourge of small cords, in other words, a whip, not an AK-47, you know, not a grenade launcher, not even a sword, just a whip that he made on the spot out of small cords. Do you really think Jesus could have been this weak and withered, even effeminate character that we see sometimes portrayed in movies and artwork? I mean, just try to picture it. Here's Jesus in the temple. Um, guys... You, th- you think it would be possible for maybe you not know, to have these tables and be selling this stuff? I mean, I, I don't want to be a bother. I'm, I'm a man of peace, after all. And I certainly never raise my voice or, you know, get stern with you because that, that, that would just be unchristian. But you get, can you, is that what we see here? Of course not. Jesus was indignant. He was angry. And he physically scourged the temple of what he saw as blasphemous filth. Let me tell you something else. They were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid. And this wasn't the only time people were afraid of Jesus. The man, his physical presence must have been imposing. His voice must have been powerful. As a 30-year-old carpenter, I believe he may well have been physically intimidating. And so he marched through the temple unhindered. As he threw tables over and whipped a few people on the backside while basically saying, get the heck out of here, you pack of thieves. He even said hell. It would have been true. Get the hell out of my temple. This is hellacious stuff. The scripture says he drove them out doesn't say ask them to leave politely. It says he drove them out like a herd of cattle. And apparently Jesus was actually able to do it. He successfully drove all these money changers out of the temple. That means they actually left. There was money involved here, friends. People were running their little businesses right here in the church. Do you think they really would have closed up shop if Jesus hadn't put a little fear of God in them? Maybe a lot of fear of God. What kind of person could single-handedly drive these people out? I mean, really. And take note of this. On those rare occasions when Jesus chose to display his strength, not a soul ever stood up to him. I believe Jesus could be frightening when he wanted to be, even fierce. As C.S. Lewis said of the lion, Aslan, who was his symbolic representation of Jesus, safe, Who said anything about him being safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good, I tell you. Who said that, somebody? Beaver, Mr. Beaver. Jesus may have been more strong than safe as well. This was simply not a guy you wanted to mess with. Even the disciples were prone to cower a bit before him at times. Remember when they worshiped him on their knees in the boat? Who is this? Good question. Peter would have never followed a weak man. Neither would have Simon the Zealot, a military guy. 
Now, Jesus had been a carpenter by trade. He was a working man who knew how to get things done. I believe Jesus was a strong, powerful, masculine man. We could also consider his final hours on this earth for a picture of physical strength. The Bible says Jesus was flogged and then savagely beaten with a special whip called a cat of nine tails. This would rip great pieces of flesh off of their back, had bones and stuff tied into it. It's terrible. After 39 lashes with this whip, because 40 lashes often killed, a 100-pound crossbeam was strapped to his shoulders, and he was ordered to carry it all the way through Jerusalem and up a hill called Calvary. Halfway there, Jesus collapsed, and someone from the crowd was ordered to help. But I'm not sure any of us in this room could have carried it three steps after what he had been through. The flogging and the whipping he received was not typical for those being crucified, by the way. It should have been one or the other, not both. Physically, I'm not sure any of us here today would be strong enough after being whipped to within an inch of death to carry a crossbeam halfway through Jerusalem. I really doubt any of us here are that strong physically. Let there be no doubt Jesus was a physically strong man. I believe his physical strength would have been something people noticed and indeed his strength played a part in how God used him. But hold on a minute. The strength of Jesus was not merely physical, was it? No, he was also mentally strong. Jesus had mind-blowing mental toughness. You know, sometimes my brain just gets fried, and I never did drugs. Remember the commercial? <laughs> I still get fried. Sometimes I can't respond like, like I should or say the words that would be best. I get mentally drained. I run out of brain power. I forget names I know in the moment. I forget important details. Just hang around me after about 8 o'clock at night after a long day, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But we don't see that with Jesus. He would preach and teach for hours all day even. He was like the Energizer Bunny. He just kept going and going. By contrast, after church on Sundays, my brain is mashed potatoes. In fact, if you want me to remember something after the service, you better hand me a note or send me an email because you're looking at a computer that needs to reboot at that point. I mean, I'm like a PC, even though I'd rather be thought of as a Mac. I got the blue screen of death at that point. You can forget about it. Send an email. <laughs> Unless it's just relational. But I mean, if it's factual, like I got to remember a time or something, forget it. Jesus never showed mental weakness. He never misquoted scripture or messed up an interpretation. He never needed to go back and retract a statement. He never let his mouth run before his brain was in gear. He never said one thing he didn't intend to say. He was mentally strong. And Jesus, the man, was also emotionally strong. Leadership is an emotionally draining thing. If you've ever had people looking to you for leadership, if you've ever been responsible for leading an organization of some kind, if you've ever been the person who every person automatically scrutinizes, whether openly or inwardly, whose very character is constantly judged, whose strengths and weaknesses are always being assessed, even by well-meaning people, then you know how emotionally draining leadership can be. Jesus had three years to train, educate, and motivate the people he would, who would build his church. He poured everything into those disciples, and the rest of them went into the throngs of needy people who groped after him constantly. Just trying to get near to him, trying to touch him, to have a moment of his time, to try to get what they thought they needed out of him. Every word he said had to be perfect. Every action, every step, every look on his face was being judged. 
He had to be emotionally strong. Jesus had to be spiritually strong. Remember, after 40 days of fasting and praying in the wilderness, Satan came to tempt him. You see, Jesus was fairly high on Satan's list. And there Jesus was, starving and now facing Satan. This was not one of Satan's minions, not just some kind of uh, feeling or presence, but a real manifestation of Satan, apparently speaking with an audible voice. And I believe there were probably several times in his life where Jesus had to face Satan on a personal level. How would you do face-to-face with the evil one? You know, we say the devil made me do it, but it's more likely none of us in this room has ever had an encounter with Satan himself. You see, unlike God, Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time, and no offense, but the devil's got better things to do than to mess with most of us. We're probably not that high on his list. I'm not saying we don't deal with spiritual forces, but likely you've never had to stand up to the manifest presence of Satan himself. But Jesus did, and he turned him down flat. He withstood the temptations, the wooing voice of that deceiver of old. And finally, when he'd endured enough, Jesus said, get thee hence. Three words, that's all it took. It was a command. It was a word of power and authority. Satan had no choice but to obey and get away from Jesus. That was only a foreshadowing of the spiritual power of Jesus because the Bible says at the end the glorified Jesus is the one who's going to cast that serpent and all of his minions straight into a lake of fire where they'll be tormented forever. He has that kind of spiritual strength. And thank God he does. The greatest show of the strength of Jesus is yet to come when he returns in his glorified state. But even as a man who had emptied himself, Jesus stood tall before Satan. Even through the physical weakness he must have felt after 40 days without food, Jesus showed unyielding spiritual strength. There was no cowering, there was no running, no crying, no fear. Jesus was a spiritual rock. Jesus, the man, was a spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically strong person. In fact, no matter what else you think about him, a very rational case could be made that Jesus was the strongest man to ever live. Whatever else you may believe, historically, a historically accurate view of Jesus pictures a man who literally personified strength. When you think of strength, think of Jesus. There's a second word that we should think of when we think of Jesus, the man. That word is sensitivity. As a man, Jesus showed great sensitivity. For example, Matthew tells us Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Time after time, the Bible shows us glimpses of the deep sensitivity of Jesus. Our Lord was as tender-hearted as he was strong. But think for a minute about some of the most powerful people in history, people who showed great strength. Think of someone like Alexander the Great or the Caesars or Genghis Khan or just somebody who was powerful and strong for good or evil. Think Rambo or Schwarzenegger, okay? Strong. But these are probably not the names that would come to mind if I asked you to think of people most known for their sensitivity, right? Some of you ladies are thinking, well, of course not. They're all men. 
Well, good point, but regardless, uncommon strength and incredible sensitivity do not usually coexist in the same person. Have you ever noticed that? Picture your high school football coach, probably strong, possibly not very sensitive. Or picture your music teacher, your drama teacher, probably sensitive, possibly not known for strength. And I know these are stereotypes, not always true, but work with me. See, the uniqueness of Jesus is in the fact that he was both strong and sensitive in the extreme. The Bible shows us that the one who had the power to calm the storm, to make the wind still and the rain stop, loved to have children climbing all over him. Sitting in his lap, just loving them, holding them, blessing them. Same person. When they told Jesus that his good friend Lazarus had died, the Bible says he wept, he cried bitterly. And then he proceeded to raise him from the dead. Jesus had the sensitivity to cry real tears over the loss of his friend and the strength to bring him back to life. The one who gave sight to the blind and caused the lame to leap allowed a woman off the street to wash his feet with her hair, with her tears. Another occasion, he lovingly washed his disciples' feet. People wore sandals. It was dusty. It was hot. Washing dirty, smelly feet is not something you normally would picture an exceptionally strong, the strongest person in the room, the strongest person ever doing. Jesus was different. He was strong and sensitive. The one who was strong enough to rise from the dead was sensitive enough to cry out from the cross, begging God to forgive his killers. The one who was assigned the greatest mission of all time, the only one who could accomplish it, The one who the Bible says was with God and who was in very nature God from eternity before time. The one through whom the universe was created, according to Colossians, was the same one who would take time out from his teaching schedule to meet one-on-one with hurting, needy, and forgotten people. The kind of people most of us just pass right by. And how frustrating This sensitivity was to his disciples. His followers would rather Jesus had focused on the strength part. They seemed almost to say, how can you spend time on these who are beyond help? You have more important things to do. Leave that to somebody else. But as Bill Hybels put it, Jesus was so sensitive to the human condition that he could almost never get from town A to town B without stopping along the way to spend time with someone whose life was an absolute mess. The sensitivity of Jesus was so radical that those around him couldn't even understand it. His sensitivity knew no color, no age, no socioeconomic barriers. Even, heaven forbid, no moral prerequisites seemed to have applied. No one was too bad. No one was too much of a sinner for Jesus to care enough to stop and love them and to touch them. Jesus was one of a kind when it came to strength, but he was also one of a kind when it came to sensitivity. There's one more word we should think of when we think of Jesus, the man. That word is simplicity. Number three, as a man, Jesus lived with radical simplicity. Jesus said of himself, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, I love this part about Jesus. It's just so revolutionary for us today, especially here in America or any first world country. Again, Heibel said this, 
about the simplicity of Jesus, the man. The usual trajectory of a competent and powerful person's life is towards greater and greater levels of complexity. Their schedule gets increasingly complicated. Their assistants erect walls of bureaucracy around them so normal people can't get close to them anymore. Eventually, they settle in gated communities. They eat the best food, wear the finest clothing, and pretty soon they're totally out of touch with the very people they once led and felt close to. At a point in time, they were among people, but now they're isolated and insulated. Their schedules are packed, their pace is exhausting, and everything in their life smacks of complexity. But that never happened to Jesus. He didn't let it happen. He didn't let it happen. He made a choice, and he kept making choices. Despite his enormous popularity, at times he had thousands following him, despite that, he chose a simple lifestyle. Jesus walked the dusty roads like everybody else. He ate their food. He stayed in their homes. He kept his schedule flexible and himself as accessible as possible. When Jesus died, he left no huge portfolio, just a blood-stained robe. That's the only possession he had. And as the prophet had predicted, even that robe was taken from him as the soldiers cast lots to see who would take it home as a trophy. Jesus kept his life simple. And this is the one who prior to this had existed in heaven. He was accustomed to the perks and privileges of paradise, and he could have raised all the funds he wanted to. He certainly could have had things. He certainly could have built an earthly kingdom. I mean, if nothing else, Jesus could have just charged a small fee for his healing abilities, you know? Just something to cover expenses, maybe. He could have ridden in chariots and slept in palaces. He could have built infrastructures and bureaucracies. He could have had it all, but he chose a simple life. Why? I think it was to show us that people matter more than things. And to show us what real life is all about, Jesus poured his life into people, not into the earning of, possession of, enjoyment of, and maintenance of stuff. Radical, isn't it? Now, remember, we're just taking an honest look at Jesus here. It's up to you how you apply any of this to your own life. Whether you choose to live your life with the simplicity of Jesus or not, it's up to you. We're simply answering the question, who is Jesus? And today we're talking about what kind of man he was. If there's something about his life that's inspiring to you and leads you to make some changes, if you're thinking, there's things I need to do different, maybe you're like, okay, I'll go back to that strength part. I need to start working out more. (laughs) I don't know, but if there's something you need to change, based on who Jesus is. I mean, that's a bonus. But one thing's really important. We need to know the man we claim to follow. We need to know the real Jesus, not a fantasy Jesus or an unbiblical Jesus. A snapshot of Jesus reveals that he refused the quest for more. He didn't go after more things, more money, more fame, or more power. He didn't even go after more influence. He said things all the time that made people discount him. Okay, he's out. I'm going to click over here to this person, listen to them for a while. He just went about living his life, accomplishing his purposes, loving and serving God, pouring his life into people. Anybody else need this reminder? Am I the only one here that this is kind of... I certainly do. I'd love to live with that kind of simplicity. Make no mistake, I often don't. I haven't completely figured out how to do that yet. But my Savior's simple life is inspiring to me, personally. 
I also want you to understand how this applies to the vision for Go Church. I'm frankly annoyed by the complexity of the typical American church mechanism. So many books, so little time, so many conferences, so many ways of doing it. I'm also exasperated by what can feel like consumeristic goals, methods, and thinly veiled efforts to keep up with whatever the church down the road is doing. Let me put it this way, as it might pertain to us, to bring this home. We are not doing anything that we are doing so that we can get big enough to be able to build a building. Okay? Now, did I say we're never going to build a building? No. Talking about motivations. And just by the way, the quickest thing that would make me want to go plant my third church is if I have to start managing complexity. I'm inspired instead by the simple church and the simple Savior of Scripture. That's why our vision will always be simple. Loving God, loving each other, loving everyone. And what we want to do together is pretty simple too. Worshiping, sharing, happens in go groups and other ways. Discipling, happens through men's and women's ministry. Blessing, it's like community service projects. Just living your life as a blessing for Christ in your world and missionary, living on mission, being evangelistic, sharing Christ with people, telling people the gospel, going on mission trips, all that kind of stuff. That's it. That's it. Five goals. That's it. No consumerism, no materialism, no competition with other churches, no church growth strategies or shortcuts, just a simple, real, and biblical church. That's what we want to be. Amen? That's what I thought. I guess I'm just remembering today that the life of Jesus is a pretty good model for my life and for our church. There once lived a man called Jesus of Nazareth. His impact on history cannot be measured. He wielded immense strength. He shared beautiful sensitivity. He lived with radical simplicity. Never has there been and never will there be again one like him. Don't you wish you had known him? <laughs> well, you still can. That's part of why he rose again. He lives. And he's present in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Our God is one God. Jesus said he would be with those who put their faith in him. And by trusting in him, you can learn to experience his spiritual presence. You can get to know Jesus spiritually the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. How do you get to know Him? How do you know He's there? How is it real? By first inviting Him to come into your life, by making a decision to place your life in His hands through a process of spiritual development called discipleship, you can walk through life with Jesus. As a byproduct, when you learn to follow and know Jesus, that means His strength, His sensitivity, and His simplicity can become yours. Your life can change. The Bible says we can become like Christ, but only when we abide in Him. Jesus said, listen, I'm standing at the door knocking, 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. He also said, all those who love me will do as I say. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and live with them. How do they do that? In the person of the Holy Spirit. God is three in one. You can be like Jesus, the Jesus we learned about today, but not by your own willpower. It'll never work. The only way to become like Christ is to invite Him into your life and let Him change you. This starts with something we call salvation. And that happens when you surrender, when you turn from self and sin and put your faith in Jesus to forgive you and transform you. When He changes you, when He changes you, only when He changes you will you be like Him. So what do you say? Do you want to follow this Jesus and become like this Jesus we've been talking about? If you're ready to trust Jesus, take that first step with Him, to trust Him as your Savior and invite Him into your life as the one you want to be like. We can do it today. Would you pray with me? If that's what you want, just tell God. Just tell Him. I want Jesus. I want Him to be my Savior. I want to become more like Him. Admit, I can't do it. I know I can't. I need you to do it, God. I surrender. I'm turning away from me and what I can try to do Repenting of that, I'm turning to you, throwing up my hands, take my life, come into my life and make me like Christ. Friend, that is what it means to be a Christian. Not all the other things so much. Is today the day, your spiritual birthday, the day you took this step that God guided to receive the saving grace of God through Christ. I hope so. And I hope you let us know because I would not be more excited about anything else. Somebody could give a million dollars today. It wouldn't be more exciting. It wouldn't be as exciting as knowing that you have decided to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because I know that means you're going to spend eternity with me and with him and with this church family. And while you're left on this earth, you're going to become more like Jesus as you surrender to him. God, thank you for the disciples that you've made, maybe even today. For the rest of us, Lord, use the words. Yes, through the preaching today, through your word, through just the, the word of Jesus. He's the living word. Just looking at his life is preaching the word. He is the Word. So looking at His life, God, we've, we've looked into the mirror of Your Word today. So change us. Help us see where we need to make changes. And do Your work, the spiritual work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.